Now, what makes you such an expert? Because I'm a hooker. Ah. And I've done most of the bad things you just read about. Do you like doing these things? Sometimes. What do you like about it? I like to turn men on. I must do a pretty good job because they pay me a lot. Do you ever have any sex that's not paid for? Is that a proposal? No. It's what we psychiatrists call a question. Yes. Yes what? Yes, I do. For men that turn me on. What sort of men turned you on? A mature, doctorly type. Like you. Are you sexually attracted to me? Yes. Are you? Attracted to you? Mm-hmm. Yes. But then this isn't a social visit, is it? You come here for help, and my job is to offer you emotional assistance. How about some sexual assistance? Do you want to fuck me? Oh, yes. Well, why don't you? Because I'm a doctor and... Fucked a lot of doctors. And I'm married. Fucked a lot of them, too. Don't you think we're getting off the point? Do you mind if I take off my coat? No. And the rest, too? Why would you want to do a thing like that? Well, because of the size of that cock in your pants. I don't think you're so married. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? My fat one, you cheap dime store hood. to one last sultry sweaty sexy edition of the greatest moments in the history of forever i'm zach i'm matt and this is episode number 146 dressed to kill the highly anticipated conclusion to one trashy summer that's right 1980 written and directed by brian de palma starring michael Caine, angie dickinson nancy allen and keith gordon This is actually an awesome movie. Yeah, and I want to talk about the idea of trashy movies as we see them. 
before sure. we even get into this movie too deep because okay. I don't want people to think that we're disparaging the movies of this month. In yeah, fact, yeah. I think, if anything, this month has proved to be an exercise in showing value to all the movies we've done. Okay, yeah. I'm because we could have done right. five really trashy movies. Oh, yeah. I think this was a good range that we did. I have things called The Sinful Dwarf oh, on Blu-ray. Oh, we certainly had <laughs> options, yeah. Or Women's Prison Massacre, which is much different than Black Mama, White yeah. Mama. But instead, we picked movies that had a lot of value. And the reason why I'm pointing that out for Dress to Kill specifically is I think this movie, when it was released, was a lightning rod for a lot of protests and whatnot oh boy. and it's something that De Palma's always dealt with I have and to say, the man, label of trashy was seen as a bad thing i watched this with you a year or two ago certainly the first time i watched it i did not pick up on the heavy hitchcock influences Rewatching it i'm basically like this feels like an homage to psycho at a lot of the parts yeah and a lot of what De Palma did in a lot of his movies was heavily influenced right. by Hitchcock. I wanted to say, though, I mean, between this and Blowout, which I watched like a few months ago, I mean, I love both those movies. We were talking about it before the show. I was like, I don't have either of the Criterion collections and, and I need to get them. It, it kind of makes me a little bit regretful that I, I, I'm i not into more of De Palma like later on. Blowout and Dress to Kill are almost too similar at times. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, what's her name? Nancy Allen? Yeah. I mean, she basically plays like the same character in both movies. Yeah, she was his wife But at that point. I think they're both awesome movies. The directing is cool. The cinematography is really cool. He does like a lot of like unique camera tricks and uh, right. interesting shots. But I don't know. Later on, De Palma wasn't quite doing it for me, I don't think. Like what? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess like his career kind of fell off for me. Yeah, I don't... I'm not sure like which ones you're referring to, but... Well, what's the rest of his filmography? Well, there was... Scarface? Scarface was 83, but yeah, there was The Untouchables. Scarface is like his Nicholas Winding Refn movie, I feel like. (laughs) The Untouchables is cool. The first Mission Impossible, which is probably the oddest. Yeah, and it is weird that he directed that. Yeah. A lot of people like Femme Fatale. It's like an underrated late one. Uh, Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think there was obviously like a peak. Yeah. Because a lot of his best stuff was in the 70s and 80s. Right. I think like the unique kind of creativity that is going on in what I feel, at least in Blowout and this movie. I just don't think that that carried on to some of his later films. He has often been criticized or whatever for ripping off Hitchcock or just imitating Hitchcock, but the way he describes it is that Hitchcock was basically his own genre, and so now that Hitchcock died you know, almost 40 years ago, and there won't be any more Hitchcock movies. It's as if he's working within that genre. <laughs> it's a genre within the suspense genre. Right. It's to work in the Hitchcock genre. Yeah, well, and he was basically doing that. I mean, it's always like confusing to me, this whole, like, is it ripping off or is it an homage, you know? Well, it's always a fine line. Okay. And for some people... Yeah. It's ripping off and they're not going to respect it as much. I think he's definitely a polarizing filmmaker. It's not like he's universally loved and respected. Oh, I would agree with that, yeah. But a lot of other filmmakers love him. Obviously, Noah Baumbach does because he did the De Palma movie. 
and they have the dress to kill portion of that movie on the Criterion Blu-ray where they're talking about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in addition to the Hitchcock comparisons or the criticisms there, he's often derided as being trashy. And that's why I oh, wanted sure. to yeah. clear up the fact that like, from our perspective, we're celebrating the word trashy and we're not using that as like something to dismiss it. Because they don't really consider this movie trash. The trashy part is just funny because, yeah, you get, like, a full frontal scene within, like, the first 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. He definitely wades into creep territory a lot in his career. I mean, Body Double is very similar. True. In terms of the nudity and stuff. And I would say it's certainly overly sexualized. Yeah, but it's, like, it's the same thing as the homage thing. It's like, well, what's the difference between doing something, and commenting on the thing. Okay, yeah. And so some people read Dress to Kill as a commentary on sex and violence and the way that women are perceived. And some people balk at the idea of a character being murdered after liberating herself sexually. It's like, how dare you send that message as if she deserves to be punished because she sought out gratification that she wasn't getting. But... The pushback would be that that's the whole point of what's happening, that it's so clearly over the top, especially the murder sequence in the elevator, that it's clearly commenting on the way that those actions in women have been portrayed in previous films and how they're thought of in society. You're not really sure which side of the line to come down on, but you still get the nudity. (laughs) You know what I mean? Whether it's a commentary on it or not, it's there. I mean, for me, any time... A prostitute is sort of the de facto hero of the picture. Yeah. I'm 100% on board. At the very least, Dress the Kill is layer upon layer of tension and suspense. There's certain parts of it that are so well thought out and well crafted that they're almost like a how-to guide on how to stage a scene. Oh, yeah. And just from like a visually exciting standpoint... That whole sequence in the museum, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Right. I mean, it's just incredible, I think. Yeah. And we're not going to reveal the ending until we actually get to the ending. But I will say without explaining exactly what it is, it's pretty obvious throughout a lot of the movie what is going on. But that's almost like besides the point because it's more about the aesthetic and the style of the film than it is about an actual mystery. I think we'd be remiss to not acknowledge the potential difficult subject matter that wouldn't really fly today. Yeah, it's true. I was thinking that, it's too. It's a very touchy subject. It, honestly, it's reminiscent of Silence of the Lambs, and we'll definitely talk about that as that comes up. But this existed in a pre-knowledge era, and I do think that by today's woke standards, people would probably find this distressing and distasteful but yeah i don't think you can necessarily hold a movie that's almost 40 years old to the standards of today i've always fought against that i think it's silly yeah i definitely think people were viewing things a little bit differently at this point and to be fair i don't even think it's that inflammatory because it's, it's making a statement about a specific type of person with a specific mental illness and i think both the way that the psychiatrist talks about it later and our two kind of main characters are talking about it. It's just kind of like they're explaining it, you know? I, I don't think that it's, like, a negative thing. 
No, but to have... They don't act like it's that crazy. Right. I mean, but I, I understand I think, it's the villain. Yeah, and I think they're, you know, especially in 1980, there's such a stigma attached to things like this that this yeah. then make them seem like, oh, well, all, these people are all insane. Okay, yeah. And they're all homicide. Right. It's potentially bad. But you could believe that one person could be... Yeah, but that, that's not how people think. For uh, whatever, okay, yeah. <laughs> for whatever right. reason. Okay, so before we jump into Dress to Kill... We'll remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. Send us a tweet. Let us know what you think of One Trashy Summer and everything else that's going on. Hard to tell what people are thinking out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy with the download numbers. I'll say that. I think so, too. (laughs) But I could stand for a little more engagement. Yeah. Well, what can you do? Yeah. So, like we said, this will be the last edition of one trashy summer and we'll get back to what we regularly do which is also a lot of trashy movies (laughs) (laughs) not that different we got a big summer slate lined up i was just sharing an outline of it with matt before we started recording always interesting to see how much things will change (laughs) yeah you never know when there needs to be a spur of the moment yeah we have a blueprint it's nice to have a blueprint but you know sometimes you gotta call an audible I don't even feel a little bit like we've done too many topics. I think back at episode 10, I probably would have been like, man, we're going to get through a lot of stuff once we get into like the 100s. But I I don't feel that way at all. I feel like there's so much left to do. Oh, yeah, there always will be. Right. You're never going to run out. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so Dress the Kill, 1980, $6.5 million budget. It brought in 31.9 at the box office. So turned a nice little profit. Yeah. It was met with some protests from feminist groups and whatnot that said it was misogynistic. It's hard for me to even, like, imagine people protesting movies in, like, the early 80s. I don't know what that would be like. Yeah, it's just hard for me to even envision that that was happening. Obviously, it was, but I don't know. I just wouldn't have thought things would have upset people like that back then. Yeah, and I mean, who knows how much it's being played up now for effect. That's true. You know, there might have been one or two protests, like, in New York and well, L.A. or something, and <laughs> yeah. nowhere else. Even in the late 90s and early 2000s, like, when I would be in, like, middle school and high school and hear about movies coming out and, and hearing that, oh, there's protests against this movie. People are trying to stop it from coming out or whatever. It's like, I, I, I'm seeing no video evidence of these protests. <laughs> Where are they occurring? In addition to the controversies with the feminists and potentially a burgeoning... LGBTQ community. I don't know how okay. far along that was. Sure. There was also a little matter of the MPAA, Uh-oh. which was a huge deal. And the version on the Criterion disc is the unrated version and not the version that was released in the theaters, which was R-rated. And there were a couple of scenes that had to be changed and huh. cut. I watched the Amazon Prime streaming version. I'm hoping that's the Criterion version. Probably. Yeah. I certainly watched the Criterion version with you at some point. The differences aren't super major, and by today's standards, I think most of it would be fine for an R rating. Did they trim that opening scene a little bit? Yeah, the opening scene, the elevator scene, and some of the dialogue between Nancy Allen and Michael Caine at the end was slightly different. Oh, there's definitely some graphic language in this movie. Yeah, I think she says, like the size of that cock in your pants but they had to change it to bulge in the r-rated version oh wow something like that (laughs) okay so the interesting thing about this movie is its aesthetic 
And despite the fact that it's this erotic thriller, a mystery of sorts, it's shot with like this soft focus, lush cinematography. There's a, what I would call romantic score by Pino Donaggio. I would say. That turns suspenseful at times. It knows how to like hit those cues, but yeah. the bulk of it is very like wistful, right. dreamy, romantic feeling. It feels like a piece of music you'd play before an episode of One Trashy Summer. You know? <laughs> well, no, it's like almost too classy. That's true. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I'm going to read a quote from Michael Koreski from the essay included with the Criterion edition of Dress to Kill okay. called The Power of Two. Dress to Kill starts with a fantasy and ends with a nightmare experienced by two different blondes in the same bed. In between, there are two other blondes, one mistaken for the other. There are also split screens, images shot with a split diopter lens, which keeps two planes in focus at once, mirrors galore, and a narrative effectively cut in two, each presided over by its own protagonist. And in terms of the film's incessant doubling, we've only just begun. And that, of course, is something that De Palma does a lot. The split screens, oh, yeah. the doubling, the idea of two. It happens over and over. In fact, there's one sequence that's a split screen in this movie where one character is watching television. Yes. The other is looking at herself in the mirror while on the phone. And it's essentially like you're watching four different things at once. I mean, there's so much mirrors doubling two going on. Well, there's times when the split screens are going on and you're kind of stuck on why are we seeing these two characters at the same time? Yeah, like that part? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's certain times where it's done intentionally to draw your eye to two different things like the whole thing with the glove being picked up right as angie dickinson's character is getting into the back of that cab and stuff like that which we'll talk about that when that comes up but this is certainly a film that rewards multiple viewings because the first time you watch it you're not necessarily knowing what to look for right and then when you watch it again you notice different things peeking their heads out at different times or, or whatever they keep you on your toes Let's just jump into the actual movie itself. The film opens with a slow pan across Crazy a bedroom. shower sequence. Oh, right? We start in the shower and go back to the bedroom. No, it starts in the bedroom okay. and pans across it into the bathroom very slowly. It's almost like Nicholas Winding Refn or something, where it's yeah. just like this long shot that goes on forever. The camera's moving at a glacial pace to get from the bedroom into the bathroom. Kate Miller, played by Angie Dickinson, is in the shower, her husband shaving at the mirror. Just a world of steam going on. Oh, yeah. Now, for those of you who don't know, Angie Dickinson was a pretty big star in her day. She was a sex symbol of the 50s and 60s. Yeah, how old was she for this movie? She was probably 40s, close to 50. And we're going to say clearly a body double here? For the close-ups, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although they wanted her to pretend like it was her at the time. Okay. During like the press and stuff. But yeah. Which is interesting because if you've ever seen Body Devil, <laughs> there's a part where there's a director played by Dennis Franz who is Dennis shooting Franz. a shower scene yeah. where they bring in a body devil for like the boobs and stuff. And I was like, this is almost exactly like right. what was probably happening with Dress uh, to Kill. De Palma just like refused to make a movie without Dennis Franz. Or a shower scene. Well, that's true, yeah. (laughs) Pretty much all of his movies have shower scenes. But yeah, Angie Dickinson was in a lot of stuff, pretty much from the 50s up through 
2009, where she basically retired. She's still alive, although she's probably in her 80s or something. Yeah, I was going to say pretty old. She's the type of sex symbol that Frasier's dad would talk about. Okay. You know, there's a lot of Angie Dickinson jokes (laughs) on Frasier. (laughs) I just know that because I was watching a lot of Frasier recently, and they mentioned Angie Dickinson in multiple episodes. Okay. But having her in this is a total break from what people would have normally associated with her. She was just wrapping a fairly popular television show called Police Woman, where she was the lead. It ran for like four or five seasons. And Do you have that on DVD? No, I've never seen it. <laughs> Most of the roles she had done were pretty chaste in comparison to this. I mean, this is a boundary-pushing, on-the-verge-of-X-rated situation. I'd say so, yeah. Situation. I mean, this opening scene feels like a Cinemax movie from the 80s. Yeah. We get a close-up on the breasts, on her pubic hair. It's a body double that I think was like a penthouse pet or something of at the time. Okay. Very sensuous shower. And the music, like I described it earlier, is very ethereal, dreamlike, romantic. Yeah. They do make it feel, yeah, like the steamy shower seems like a sexual thing. But all, all I can think to myself is like how bad I would be like sweating and like I wouldn't be able to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly this tranquil, idyllic scene is interrupted as behind Kate a man appears and it's not her husband because oh, no. they make it clear that her husband is still at the mirror shaving. Yeah. The man covers her How mouth did this happen? and lifts her up off of the ground. It's presumably a rape. It's not super graphic in that sense. It's okay. not like you see thrusting or anything, but right. he's picking her up There's basically by reaching between her legs. Yeah. This is some of the stuff that had to be trimmed for the R-rated version. I was like, what's going on here? Like a cuckolding situation? It's all revealed not to be real as it cuts to Kate's husband on top of her plowing away in bed. Yeah. And so the question is, did we just watch a dream or is this what she was fantasizing about during sex? Right. Is this where her mind was? It seems like that's where her mind was. It doesn't, you're not really sure, but. You don't think she was asleep having sex? (laughs) No, but I I was thinking like, well, right. It could be just this is something that was a dream before, and then this is like that well, morning. It certainly feels more like a dream than like a yeah. fantasy, but within the context of the movie, you can only make it be like where her mind was based on how it's cut. So they're having like an AM fuck sesh, Kate selling it a bit too much. I think so. A little over the top. With yeah, the she noises. really likes to go on. Whether she's faking it or really enjoying it, she's pretty loud. Her husband just crawls off without a word. (laughs) And so we are plunged into this familiar story, the sexual frustration of a bored housewife. And it should come as no surprise to people who have listened to every episode that we're interested in this topic. A major influence, according to De Palma on this film, was Louis Buñuel, who did Belle du Jour. Yes. And there are a lot of similarities in this idea, because this is a very masochistic fantasy that Kate is having in order to help her get there yeah, with her so. husband, <laughs> who she's clearly not super into anymore. Right. The next scene is Kate speaking with her son, Peter, played by Keith Gordon. Major nerd alert. Here. Oh, yeah. When, <laughs> and, like, it's hard to even fathom how these two would connect with each other, but they seem to have a pretty good relationship. I mean... Whatever he's doing, it seems like he's maybe inventing a computer and maybe the internet. 
<laughs> well, she's like, good job, honey. Keith is based off of De Palma. Or not Keith, sorry. Peter is based off of De Palma himself, who built computers, who at one point followed his father around to catch him having an affair with another woman. A okay. lot of this stuff yeah. is put into the Peter character. See, you can kind of see why it's a little fucked up. This scene of them talking together is one of only two actual scenes with Angie dialogue. Right. Now, she Even does though have she's in it a lot. One line of dialogue when she's getting into the back of the cab, she's saying something. But, I mean, that's not really like a full scene. Yeah, yeah. She has this scene and then a scene with Michael Caine here in a minute, and that's pretty much it as far as talking goes, but she is in it for like almost 40 minutes. Yes. Peter breaks off plans that they had to go to the museum later, which will then cause Kate to go by herself. Right. A domino effect. So she goes and sees her psychiatrist first. I'm a little bit confused about all of this because she says to Peter... Why aren't you ready? We need to leave. As if they were going to the museum right then. And then yeah. he explains that he can't because he's got to work on his computer. And then she's like, okay. And then... Maybe she's just able to drop by sometimes. <laughs> A spontaneous session. Yes. I don't know. Her psychiatrist is Dr. Robert Elliott, played by Michael Caine. Yes, the lovable Michael Caine. And in this session, Kate vents her frustrations with her husband, Mike... Yeah, and kind of is just sort of pitching a sexual relationship to her therapist. Yeah. And he's saying, you need to be direct with Mike, and she's like, what, tell him he sticks in bed? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, if he does. And she throws it out there a little bit. It's like a half of an uh, attempted seduction. It's not like a full-blown thing. She throws it out there and kind of pulls it back. A different character will be more of a full-blown attempt later but this is more of just like throwing the idea out there she's rebuffed dr elliott says he's married he doesn't want to jeopardize his marriage so she goes to the metropolitan museum of art by herself right and And this like kicks off this like iconic sweeping long sequence of i don't know how to describe what's going on with her and this dude (laughs) <laughs> this weird game of cat and mouse throughout the hallways of the museum. It's an absolute masterclass on scene staging and suspense building. Yeah. And the first key to it is really knowing your location, knowing the surroundings and exploring that space and mapping out something that you can build. And I think the original idea was that they had in the their back pocket the idea that maybe they would bring Angie in to record narration if it didn't work. Oh wow. And so one of the big I'm glad that didn't happy happen. moments was De Palma calling Angie after they had filmed everything and saying we don't need you to come in. And they were both like happy with this cuz right. that meant it had worked. Yeah, I mean, this is a scene that, like, if someone had never seen this movie and wasn't really interested in watching it, I would be like, well, we should at least watch this sequence. So it starts with her by herself. She's witnessing interactions of love, potential love, family. Even the paintings that she's looking at tie in with her and her feelings. She's essentially people watching. Right. How bored do you have to be to just go to a museum by yourself? (laughs) Well, it was 1980. There weren't a ton of options. Okay. There's only a couple of channels, no internet. No Avenger movies. 
While she's there, Kate experiences an unexpected flirtation with a mysterious stranger that lasts for almost nine minutes with no audible dialogue from yeah. the audience. The music cue starts when this man sits down next to her, and what you need to pay attention to as a viewer is her body language, her facial expressions, which change and, and shape what's happening throughout all of this. You can see her initial internal struggle because yeah. she is an attractive woman, and we know that she knows that. And so the understanding here is that this man is potentially trying to pick her up. And that is almost immediate. It's almost like how nowadays creeps will send girls dick pics or something. You know what I mean? It's like, it's (laughs) just like. That was like meeting someone in a museum. Yeah, it's like, well, why else would this man sit down next to her? It seems as if there's an entire museum to go sit or stand or be. But he sits down right next to her. Still so foreign to me the idea of like having an interaction like this with a stranger that's going to potentially result in something. Well, you're forgetting the rules. Rule number one, be attractive. That's true. Rule number two, <laughs> don't be unattractive. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yes. <laughs> and then the world will be a lot different. <laughs> it would, these movies would make more sense to me. So the first thing she does is remove one of her gloves, which reveals her giant diamond ring, her wedding ring. Oh, yes. And so different people have interpreted this scene differently, and I'm interested as to what your take would be. The logical interpretation is that she's sending the signal that she's married to shut this guy down. But other people have taken it to mean, hey, I'm married, so whatever's about to happen is no strings attached. It's like letting someone know that it's a casual moment. Well, I certainly like to believe it's the latter. That makes her seem more fun. Yeah, that's true. Although, judging by her reactions to things and how long it takes to build this all up, it's probably more likely that she's still in the defensive mode and scared and so it's so. more of like a, yeah you know hey buddy calm down i think that's more likely so as soon as she does this the man flees he just gets up and walks away and her initial reaction fuck there's a lot of things to read into there it's, yeah regret yeah it's like why would she have done this i don't know she doesn't know what she wants she definitely seems panicked that he's leaving And so begins the back-and-forth cat-and-mouse game as the two just basically take turns stalking each other through the museum. It's so fucking cool the way it, like, goes along, and there's parts where she basically, like, walks past him, and the like, we're seeing, like, the front of her, and he's, like, standing against a wall behind her. It's, like, kind of creepy, but really cool. Who's pursuing who is basically... (laughs) Right. And it, it seems to change from moment to moment. The first thing that happens after the initial chasing sequence is that she drops her glove. He picks it up, and then he puts it on. Yeah, that's weird. And she, he comes up from behind. She resists. Now she's basically fleeing him. And so then she turns a couple corners, and then she's like, where's my fucking glove? Well, he freaks her out a little bit. And somehow she hadn't noticed before, but now we see through like a inset flashback, flashback thing. She realizes the man had had her glove on. Somehow doesn't notice. I mean, it seems striking. It's such a weird thing to do, really, to put the glove on. That's what I mean. If you're not Michael Jackson, it's hard to pull off, like, a woman's glove. One time, a girl left shorts at my house. Oh, no. And... (laughs) I think we all know where this is headed. Another... uh, She worked at, like, a restaurant or something, and, and a friend of mine was like... We were talking about, like, taking the shorts to her. 
he's like, you should just wear the shorts. <laughs> and at this point, I weighed like a hundred pounds less than I do now. And I honestly, right. the shorts probably would have been like too big. Oh man! <laughs> I mean, I was like so skinny. Wow. But that image and how funny that would be to me, like, yeah. has never left my mind. I've always thought that's like so fucking funny for some reason. Just the image <laughs> of that. So and what happened to the shorts? I just gave them back. Oh like, man. <laughs> I never wore them. <laughs> Although I might have tried the one. I don't know. So now Kate's basically chasing the man back through the museum trying to get these gloves. And the score is like reaching a crescendo. It's building and building and building. Until finally, she just gives up. Kate thinks she's lost this guy for good. She goes outside the museum. She even tosses the other glove oh, onto yeah. the sidewalk right. outside. Until she notices the man waving the dropped glove yes. from the window of a taxi. Right, but doesn't go back and get the other one that she just threw. Yeah, and this is what I was talking about when I said that Dress to Kill rewards multiple viewings because as the camera pans from Kate standing on the steps leading up to the museum to the man in the back seat of the taxi holding the glove, there is a brief first glimpse of our soon-to-be killer just standing there, and it just goes right by them. Now, of course, the first time you see this movie, you have no idea that that's what you're looking at. Sure, yeah. And it's just for a second. Yeah. And, unbeknownst to Kate, as she approaches the taxi and actually goes to speak to this man for the first time, someone is retrieving the other glove from the sidewalk, and this is shown in a flash of split screen, which, as we mentioned, is a De Palma trademark. And so... At this point in the movie, you know, we're like 25 minutes in. This is a particularly challenging movie for us to do as a podcast because sure, it's such it, a visual it is, absolutely. exercise. And that's the whole point of this movie is the visual, the aesthetic of it, the stylized filmmaking of it. Yeah. The actual plot is almost secondary. And like I said, I think even if it's your first time watching the movie, it's not super hard to reach a conclusion. Yeah. At a certain point, there's really only one thing that makes sense. Right. There's really no other options. This whole thing with the glove like had me thinking about something that happened in my life. <laughs> like a pretty crazy car accident one time. Okay. It was winter and we like car full of people. We like rolled down a hill, like down into a ravine. Wow. Yeah. Everyone was like, okay. The car was like upside down, but the back wind windshield was like smashed out. So we all like crawl out the back and like climb back up this hill. It was like fucking the aggro crag and global guts or whatever <laughs> it was all dudes except one girl was with us and we like climb up this hill and then like i look at her and she's just wearing one boot and nothing on the other foot and she just like takes it off and, and she's like i lost my fucking shoe or whatever and so she just throws the one that she had <laughs> and then two seconds later my friend walks up with her other shoe <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's a wild story. It is. The man from the museum opens the taxi door and just greets Kate with a full-on make-out sash. Just... Oh, right. Going right for it. I love this guy's passion. Which is... Michael Douglas-esque. She readily accepts as they tumble oh, into yeah. the back seat together. <laughs> yeah, she was thirsty. She ready to go. The cabbie loving it, adjusting his <laughs> mirror. <laughs> I mean, hey, if people were going to do that in the back of your cab, you might as well get a look. It's like De Niro driving. <laughs> this dude is really making a move in the backseat of this cab. Oh, he's yeah. pulling her panties off. Going right for it. It seems like in the movie that he's fingering her. I think the idea is eventually 
there's some oral sex being done here, although wow. they don't get too graphic with Middle it. of the day in the back of a cab. How about that? And she's just orgasming all over the streets of right. New Right, everyone York City. in fucking Manhattan can hear what's <laughs> going on. Yeah, it's funny how they blend her orgasmic scream into the beeping of the horns of traffic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. I think we do see them getting out at this building very briefly. But hours later, Kate awakens, but the man this is still asleep. Quite a day. Yeah. Her plan is to sneak out discreetly. She goes out into the other room Not after before. getting dressed. Yeah, she's going to have a little look-see around the apartment. Well, she calls her husband, but then hangs up. I don't know what she was thinking. So then she's like, I'm going to leave a note. She's searching around through the desk. She finds out this guy's name is Warren Lockman because there's like an ID card. This part is conveniently like amazing. So then she's writing different notes, crinkling them up, thinking, like, that's not good. And then she's, like, looking through this drawer, and she sees this notification from, like, a health department or something saying <laughs> that this... This wild alert. Yeah, this guy, Warren Lockman, has a sexually transmitted disease. Seems like he has two, because it says syphilis and gonorrhea. Wow. Now, you know, I guess it depends on what kind of place you go to or whatever, but this was definitely a real thing yeah yeah and you were supposed to like notify all of your partners and stuff you know and this is even pre-panic of aids and i stuff. guess there's no visible effects from these two i guess i think there can be but not yeah, necessarily yeah. i guess not in this case yeah so she of course is horrified by this uh, yeah. just panicked oh and boy disgusted she I rushes think I'm in out trouble yeah so she runs out into the hallway of this building now, I do want to say something about this building, because it seems almost like a hotel, yet this Warren Lockman guy is living there. Right. De Palma has... was explaining what this building was oh, okay. on one of the features, and there's some place, it was on like Wall Street or something, where people would take prostitutes or different people they would pick up and have sex, but like oh. I, I still couldn't get like the clear indication the of, was it like where people lived or what? Because... This will all get even more confusing later, but by the time this get, all gets brought up, it's like no one's thinking about this building anymore, but we'll meet Liz in a minute, and Liz is a prostitute, and she's there with somebody from out of town. So it's like, yes, well, who true. lives there? Right. I don't know. I mean, uh, his explanation but, on the bonus features didn't even quite make sense to me, so I, mean, I, don't, this, I don't know. This dude's apartment definitely feels like his own. Yeah. It's got like a weird kind of cold, modern vibe to it. Yeah. So she's out in the hall leaving... Briefly, through the fire exit door, we can see that someone's watching. So there's a little bit of like, okay, there's someone here. Yeah, and you are like, how long have they been there? Because it seems like hours have yeah. gone by. I tried to break down frame by frame the little sequence of them getting out of the cab and going into this building to see if you could like, see this person any anywhere. Because they, they keep cutting away to what Kate is looking at. I know this is probably confusing to people listening, but as they're getting out of the cab, you, the camera is focused on Kate and this man, Warren Lockman, as they're going to go up to his apartment and have sex. But she keeps looking down the street, like on the sidewalk, and it will cut to what she's looking at. Right. And there's just people there, and then there's like a moving truck or something, and it does it twice. So it cuts to something twice, and I'm like, what are we looking at here? And I'm going frame by frame searching it. Maybe I'm just missing what we're supposed to see, because it seems weird to just cut to nothing that's just down the street. I don't know. It might just be one of those things to keep you on your toes, though, yeah, too. Yeah, it's definitely possible. She gets onto the elevator. Almost immediately, we get another little inset flashback where she's realizing that she's forgotten her wedding ring. 
on the nightstand. Right. Panic. She's already hit the button to go all the way down to the basement. It's like now she's like hitting it to go all the way back up. Oh yeah. But she's got to ride it. So this mother and her little girl get on and they're staring at her. I think to myself she wouldn't even be able to get back in here. Although I guess it's like the door must be unlocked. Well, she's gonna have to knock. I guess. Yeah. Whew. Well, I mean, it's what's the alternative, right? Anytime you do something that you're guilty of and you're feeling guilt, it feels like people know and they're staring. And that was like the whole point yeah. of putting that girl on there who just won't stop staring at her. Right. To make her feel even more okay. guilty. Yep. So she's going back up to the seventh floor again. And when the elevator opens, standing there is a tall blonde woman with dark sunglasses holding a straight razor. Oh, shit. This is clearly the person that was looking out from the fire exit door. Yeah. And you, as you pointed out, how long were they waiting there? I, my thought was how lucky were they that, that she forgot she the wedding came ring? back up. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like an unlikely coincidence. Well, this is almost Gus-esque in Basic Instinct coming out of the elevator. Yes. And I think we referenced that we would be doing another yeah, elevator true. murder. Right. So this person comes on, slashing away. It's pretty graphic. You see the razor blade dragging right. across her face. That was one of the things that had to be cut for the oh, rated yeah, yeah, version. Yeah. And it's basically a bloodbath going on meanwhile <laughs> this razor just going to town a couple of floors down there's a high-priced call girl named liz played by nancy allen yeah high-priced and call girl angel i would say <laughs> she's walking with a john some fucking doofus some guy from out of town and they push the elevator button to call for an elevator to go down and when it opens on the floor <laughs> that they're on it's a real fucking horror show right and the john just runs away immediately <laughs> before liz even turns to look liz doesn't even know what's happening all of a sudden the guy's running down the hall well he knows <laughs> leaving liz alone i will say that i love nancy allen i'm a huge fan i like her too and this scene is fucking cool when our killer is still on the elevator yeah this is like another cool setup shot Although I don't quite understand why it plays out the way it does, but the look of it and well, how it's done true. is cool. Right. It's all done in slow motion. Kate, very bloody, is reaching out. The killer is trying to hide up against the near wall of the elevator. Liz, instinctually, is reaching in to catch the elevator door before it closes, because this woman is obviously in need of help. Yeah, cannot see what's on there. And this is all happening in slow motion, like I said. And she's reaching in, and all of a sudden, the glint of the razor catches the mirror in the elevator, and it prompts Liz to look up and see the reflection of the killer waiting on the near wall. Yes. For some reason that I'm not sure why or what happens, the killer drops the razor right as Liz is pulling her hand back. So then the door closes just as Liz manages to grab the weapon, which well, was dropped. I and think, I don't know why the killer dropped well, it. Well, I kind of think we find out a couple times in this movie that our killer is kind of a bumbling doofus at times. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily disagree, but I don't know if that really is a good enough yeah. explanation. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, it doesn't make sense that it's intentional, right? No. Unless it's just a scare. I don't know, but it turns into a bit of a plot point. Because she touches this murder weapon and right. so her prints are on it. True. I mean, ultimately, it's pretty irrelevant. Yeah, it but they do matter. bring it up a couple of times, I guess. Wait, does this same razor get left at the scene? Yeah, because she has it. Okay, yeah. Even though there's a razor back in play later on. Yeah, they don't really ever explain. Okay. I mean, it's, I guess, I'm, just a different one. Yeah, I'm good. So now there's a shift in focus of the film. 
almost like another right. homage to Psycho. Exactly. We have yes. the main character because Angie Dickinson was way, way, way more famous than Nancy Allen in 1980. Oh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't even right. close. So Angie Dickinson is like the big star. And the movie has been 100% focused on her. Right. And now she's dead. And we're 40 minutes in. Basically, yeah. And so Liz, being the only witness to the murder, makes her both the prime suspect, and the killer's next target. Oh, yeah. Back at his office, good old Dr. Elliot receives a message on his answering machine from someone calling themselves Bobby. I think this scene is awesome. Michael Caine plays it well because he's listening to it, and basically Bobby is, like, confessing to this murder. Without actually saying it. True. But, yeah, basically. Uh, But it all builds to this part where it's like, go look for your razor or whatever, and he opens, like, the box where he keeps these types of devices. And the razor is missing, and you're like, ooh. Yeah, it's like some sort of, like, shaving set. Right. Like a nice Yes, something I wouldn't know. The things we learn from this message are that Bobby is unhappy, that Bobby is a girl inside this, quote, man's body, and you're not helping me out, is what he slash she is saying. Yeah. This is, like, a touchy subject, because clearly when it comes to the idea of transsexuals, the usage of pronouns is a big deal. I don't really know what to say about this Bobby character because of the way it all plays out throughout the movie, <laughs> whether you should say he or she. I, I don't really say Bobby. Know. So Bobby has a shrink <laughs> named Levy, and this new doctor will supposedly sign the papers so Bobby can get the operation. Right, post-op that Bobby. They want. And as almost like a little tag at the end of the message, Bobby's like, oh, and I borrowed your razor, and well, you'll read about it. Yeah, yeah. And somehow manages to make a, not even really a veiled threat, but a threat to Liz as well. I mean, yes, Bobby yes. doesn't know Liz's name, but references there being another, a, another person yeah. that needs taken care of. Detective Marino, played by Dennis Franz, also leaves a message. He reaches out to Elliot, informing him of Kate's death. <laughs> And this news, coupled with the call from Bobby... Yeah, this shakes... Shakes Dr. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's like, oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Trouble. So now Peter, Kate's son, Liz, the witness, the high-priced call girl, and Dr. Elliot are all at the police precinct at the same time. Right. Peter, as we've already established, is like this annoying inventor-type guy. So he uses some kind of homemade device to listen to right. Marino and Dr. Elliot discuss the details. So Big Pete finds out that Liz was a witness to his mama's murder. Yeah. Marino seems to really be pushing Dr. Elliot's other patients as potential suspects, which then plants the idea in Peter's head. Yeah, it is weird that I did think it's strange that they're immediately stuck on the psychiatrist and the other patients. Yeah, because I'm not really sure why Marino would make that leap. Right. There's really no reason to think that there's any connection Obviously, to Dr. Ca- Elliot at all. I mean, he the cop kind of alludes to this. I mean, obviously she's kind of down for some promiscuous behavior when she's like being picked up by a dude at a museum in the middle of the day. Yeah. So it's strange to me that like this would be the investigation route. Yeah, I mean... It makes sense later once other things happen. Okay, right. But now, yeah, I don't know why he would be fixated on this train of thought. Yeah. Where are we getting that from? I don't know. 
But Marino also is really giving Liz a hard time. <laughs> I would say that Marino not sex positive. <laughs> I don't think so, yeah. <laughs> Very We're... prejudicial against prostitutes. Right, yeah. Yeah, he certainly is not uh, respectful of her career choices. And the very frank, direct language they use in this movie is something that we would definitely take for granted now with R-rated movies. But we're talking a movie that's not far removed from a time when people didn't even say the word fuck. In oh, a that's movie. true. Yeah, right. He's like, "Tell me the truth. Who you fucking?" Oh yeah. Well, I you're mean, a whore. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Very graphic language in this movie. It gets way worse when they're in the subway later. Yeah, it's just very in your face. And that was another reason that this movie was so controversial. Marino gives Liz 48 hours to track down that John she was with, or else they're arresting her for the murder. <laughs> Which is an interesting dilemma to be presented Eventually, with. this will be revealed to be not that serious. Right. But it is something that comes up several times throughout the course of the movie now. And you're just like, what? It's such a leap to make. I mean, yeah, she did a dumb thing. She picked up the murder weapon. She's the only witness. But this is like a bloody graphic scene. She didn't have any blood all over her clothes. (laughs) A (laughs) crazy thing for like a cop to threaten someone with. Yeah. Peter, he takes it upon himself to use a time-lapse camera to track patients leaving Dr. Elliot's office. Now, this is mostly because of what I pointed out, which is Marino is saying all these things. Peter's overhearing it, so now he gets fixated on that. A lot of times at this part of the movie, I'm like, did I miss, like, 20 minutes of this or something? Like, it feels like they get to him, like, set up and spying on the office, like, very quickly. It doesn't feel like he's that upset about his mom's death. I mean, he's... (laughs) He's, he's not that broken up about right, it. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly hell-bent on, like, revenge and finding out what happened, but he seems just as cheerful as he did when he was building his computer or whatever. Yeah, I will say that because of the story and the plot points taking a backseat to the visual filmmaking yes. style, that this particular moment of the film feels underdeveloped. Because, like I said, there's no real reason for Marino to fixate on Dr. Elliot from the start, yeah. as far as like the other patients, yet both Marino and Peter seem to just take that and run with it. It has to be another patient of Dr. Elliot's. Yep. Dr. Elliot, meanwhile, receives another call from Bobby, which pretty much insinuates that Liz is now being hunted. And this transitions into this split screen with Liz being stalked and Bobby's phone message continuing, and he or she is really hung up on Kate's sexuality and right, femininity. Right. And he's referring to her as a cock teaser and all of this stuff. Oh, no. And then that fades into Dr. Elliot watching an episode of The Donahue Show, where <laughs> yes. Donahue is interviewing a transsexual, which, you know, I don't know how to, you know, be super delicate about this, but it was certainly a novel thing in 1980. I it think. Was not something that a lot of people probably had a lot of familiarity with. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. And so shows like Donahue, which have their own issues and problems, I mean, certainly daytime talk shows can be pretty exploitative, but it was bringing this concept to a whole new audience. (laughs) It was probably blowing a lot of people's minds. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, that's just the truth of it. I mean, this concept was probably mind-blowing to a lot of people at right. that time. And so, certainly, this is setting up a story very much like Silence of the Lambs, where Buffalo Bill believed himself to be a transsexual and wanted to have the surgery. And at that time... Oh, yeah. I don't know how it is I now. I thought he just wanted to have nice skin. I don't know how it is now, but at the time, it had to be approved by... I guess a psychiatrist and maybe a medical doctor as well. Oh, okay. Interesting. There's a lot more hoops to jump through, and that's something that's a very a huge plot point in Silence of the Limbs and how they're tracking, you know, how they're figuring right. out the identity yeah. of this person. And well, it's it's a plot point in this as well. Yeah, but like they're not searching for rejected candidates at the major centers. But true, but it factors in. Yeah, that's well. Yeah, that's the whole concept behind what they're looking for. So does where, Peter hear? The phone call or something? Which phone call? Not phone call, like the Bobby message. No, I don't think so. Okay. I didn't know if he had some weird, if there was like a blowout situation going on where he's got some sound device or something. He's definitely doing some sort of spying on. No, so far he just set up the time lapse thing. Okay. Because there's no specific target until the scene that comes next, which is out in the streets, Bobby or someone is pursuing Liz. It's this intense chase scene where she gets into a cab right the cab driver's horny and helpful (laughs) wants to go on a date oh yeah this is another cool long sequence though she runs eventually into the subway she has this confrontation with the street gang oh yeah speaking of graphic language the things that they're saying to her very aggressive yeah the part where they're chasing her is hilarious the part where she's standing on the ramp right before this happens and like there's like people popping in and out of the shot, you know, when she's just standing on the platform right. and it's like doing the long shot and like people are kind of like popping in and out. I think that part's really cool because you like keep expecting it to be the killer. Yeah. She's running from this street gang. She gets onto the train. Finds a subway patrol guard or something who is of very little help. Well, first she looks one direction and while she's looking that way. The street gang on the other side jumps onto the train that she doesn't know. And then she turns and looks that way, and then we see Bobby get onto the train. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, we recognize the killer from the situation in the elevator. Yeah, the police attendant guy is not very helpful. He gets off at a certain point. Then the gang chases Liz from car to car. Oh, yeah. They pass a lot of people, and no one is intervening with this. No one cares. Yeah, (laughs) it is crazy. So they're chasing her from car to car. Finally, in between two cars, Bobby is waiting and about to slash Liz. The gang takes a look at this, and they're like, fuck this, and they yeah. hop off. And <laughs> I'm like, good when here. The train stops. Peter, out of nowhere, with the last second save, he uses what he'll later describe as homemade mace, sprays Bobby in the face, who then runs off the train. Yeah, and this is another one of those parts where it's just like a failed... Uh, like, our killer kind of looks weak here. Yeah. After this, Liz and Peter back at Liz's place. The dialogue in this scene is You saved my life. Hilarious. <laughs> she asks him, "What was that stuff?" He begins to explain it. She says, "Save the Mr. Wizard routine." <laughs> He's like, "You just asked." Oh, I know. Yeah. What do you mean? So then she's like, "Well, you saved my life with it." And he's like, "I wish it have saved mom." Her response, <laughs> not a tear. You sure liked your mom a lot, huh? That's her response to that. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. They just so (laughs) kind of casually talk about his dead mom. And it's like, 
I know he's doing this all like in her name. No, I'm just saying it by what the fuck is she talking about? Well, like, is that so, you're you you're hanging out with someone and their mom died, and then sure. you go, you sure liked your mom a lot? Huh? Well, I know it's crazy, and you're <laughs> right, but it's just like I can't get over the fact that it's like his mom died like four days ago. Yeah, I don't even know if it's been four days. It's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, because it it hasn't. It's only been one day. Is that true? Well, do we know that for sure? Marino gave Liz forty eight hours. Oh, that's true. Wow, really not broken up about his mom. Well, he's launched into detective mode. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very, like, Halloween 3 type situation here. Like, what's the sleeping arrangement? Right. You always feel like they're maybe going to do a weird move with Liz and Peter and and turn this into some sort of unlikely romance. Thankfully, it never does because that would be insane. I guess I'll go sleep in the car. It's better than the ground anyway. Yeah, yeah. She's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I have multiple beds. <laughs> it does seem like she's got a big apartment. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was feeling the, a little bit of a spark there between the two. I mean, I don't think he could operate on her level. It's interesting, though, because the part was originally written for like a 12-year-old. And wow. at a certain point, they decided that that just didn't work and didn't make sense. So they cast somebody older that De Palma had worked with previously. And so I'm wondering if most of the script was left intact. And so... Oh, okay. And they were just like, let's not make it a romantic... Yeah, the character was written to be looking at him as like a kid the whole time. Gotcha. Liz and Peter are going to team up now. Liz goes to Marino with an update, which really isn't much. By the way, who was Peter following? Was he following her? Yeah. Or not Bobby? No. Okay. Because... They make it a point to show him noticing her when Marino tells Dr. Elliot that she was the witness. Yes, so yes. He so he knows who she is. So he's been on like a ongoing stakeout of both Dr. Elliot's office and being able to follow Liz. Yeah, I mean, at this point, this is like the middle of the night. I don't think there's any more patients leaving Dr. Yeah, Elliot's. Okay. I know, it's just a tough operation to juggle. The first time he only goes there, and I think he's just timing people. Okay. So it's not even like he's not really staying there. Uh, yep, I'm good. Peter goes to Dr. Elliot's office in search of a name. This is when he sets up that thing to actually take the pictures. Dr. Elliot remains the only one who's actually aware of Bobby. Well, that is one of the things that really seems suspect about Dr. Elliot is that he's not revealing this to the police. And they do play it off with this whole doctor-patient confidentiality thing, like I wouldn't talk about my patients. But yeah. it is strange. I mean, this person is basically saying that they're murdering people. Marino basically tells Liz to break into Elliot's office and get the appointment book herself as his hands are tied. He's so fixated on Dr. Elliot's patients that he's already tried to put pressure on trying to get this stuff. Elliot's already use the doctor-patient confidentiality thing, and there doesn't really seem to be any other leads, and he's hanging this whole thing over Liz's head of, like, well, you're the suspect then, if you don't do this. Like I said, I mean, it is eventually revealed that Marino is bluffing, but it seems crazy that he's like, hey, why don't you go do this? (laughs) Otherwise, you're gonna get arrested. (laughs) Yeah. Alright, he might be a little bit of a sleazy cop. So Liz and Peter come up with this plan where she's going to pose as a potential patient and that will leave Liz alone with Dr. Elliot in his office. And so we interesting without much of attire for a patient. Without much of a build up, we're just in this scene. And so 
it's happening. Yeah. It, it seems like there would be another moment here, but it, it just doesn't happen. Well, that's the thing. It's like we're pretty far into the movie at this point. I feel like we haven't talked about that many scenes. I mean, I feel like three scenes of the movie take up like 15 to 20 minutes each. Like three sequences, you know? Yeah, I think the only thing that has happened that we man, we might have missed was there is a scene where Dr. Elliot goes to see Bobby's new doctor. Oh, that's Dr. true. Dr. Levy. Yeah. And there's a lot of concern over what is going to happen with this surgery. Elliot is trying to convince Levy that Bobby is potentially dangerous and has potentially already murdered somebody and looking to murder more. Yes, yes. And Levy seems to believe him but wants to get further confirmation is how it's kind of left okay and i think that happened like right prior to this setup with liz going to see dr elliot to try to get this appointment book so once there she launches into this long detailed account of a sexual dream which is essentially designed to distract and excite dr elliot and this certainly ends up mirroring <laughs> this is an the earlier scene with Kate. Plan. Yeah, I don't know if this is just her improvising, All but she showed up... Address book? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she shows up wearing an overcoat, and as we're going to find out, just lingerie underneath. <laughs> improvising, this is just what she was wearing. <laughs> Which is a process. That's true, that's a good point. So this scene mirrors something earlier with Kate, because she's coming on strong. Outside, in a raging thunderstorm, Peter is spying through the window with binoculars just pouring out liz is like can i take my coat off he's like fine she takes it off she's wearing just lingerie underneath it's a real fucking looney tunes show outside with peter as he's falling all over the place that fall he takes when he's like crossing the street and then like into that little you wouldn't call it a yard, but that little fenced-in garden area. Yes. Yeah, right. That fall is just the fakest-looking thing. It's like, I, what is, I'd say so, happening? yeah. <laughs> I do like when she's talking to Dr. Elliot, and she's like, do you want to fuck me? And yeah. she's like, yes. <laughs> yeah, His it, answers are just right direct. Well, I mean, it's it's a compelling thing to think about. I think she looks pretty good here. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think... Nancy Allen is, like, really attractive, and I really like her voice. Yes. There's something about her accent or something. I don't know. Super 80s cute. I love it. Yeah, she is 80s cute. (laughs) It's weird, though, when you compare how she talks to how Angie Dickinson talks. Angie Dickinson has a very distinct way of speaking that reminds me of David Carradine from The End of Kill Bill Volume 2. Wow. It's like a very similar lisp or something. Okay. And the way she enunciates certain words, it's very similar to the end of Kill Bill Volume 2. I don't really know why, but that just really jumped out to me. I'll have to do a side-by-side. Nancy Allen's got some sort of, I don't know, New York accent, I guess. I don't really know what she's doing. Yeah, I don't know. She has a certain like disarming quality to her. So she's throwing herself out there, and she's like, all right, well, I'm in my underwear now. Let's do this. <laughs> she's kind of leaving it up in the air, and then she's like, all right, I'm going to go to the bathroom to powder my nose. I'm going to leave the decision with you as to whether or not this shit's going to go down. So <laughs> if you want to party, I'm going to come back in, and your clothes are going to be next to mine. And if not, then we'll just get back to what we were doing with the psychiatry bullshit. What an interesting situation to find yourself in. Yeah, it's interesting to point out that 
up until the last minute, she's of one track of thinking. Like, she's of one mindset the entire time. Because she goes into the other room while leaving Dr. Elliot by himself, and she's scrambling to find this appointment book. She's finding the last name on it because her and Peter have deduced that it was the last appointment of the day. Okay. Must be this killer, this blonde woman. They put that together. Peter just getting poured on outside. While she's doing that, she finds the name. She goes through his Rolodex. She pulls out a Rolodex card with this person's name. It's all a red herring, obviously, and this person's name is irrelevant. It's just somebody that she's matching up. She's doing all of this work. As this is all happening, Elliot's left alone, and it's looking like he's going for it because all of a sudden he starts to disrobe. Back outside, all of a sudden a big blonde woman pulls Peter away from the window he's yeah, spying uh, through. Uh-oh. And you're like, oh shit, this Bobby. is Bobby. Peter's dead. <laughs> but then, almost instantly, it's a double twist because you see a blonde inside as well. And now you're like, wait, there's two Bobbies. What the fuck is happening? Yeah, I think the first time I saw it, I would... I mean, everything's just kind of moving along. I'm like, oh, wow, Bobby's inside already. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, it's almost like instantaneous, Yeah, that's though. true. But that gets into that whole thing because there's added confusion because it's hard to see through the window. And then there's the reflection element. So there's always this doubling and you're not even sure if you're seeing a reflection or the yeah, person yeah. or whatever. When Liz finally returns to the room that she left Dr. Elliot in, she finds the lights now off. Oh boy. And she's this can't be good. Vulnerable because she's just in her underwear. She enters and from behind her Bobby approaches. But who was the other blonde outside? So you're you're trying to <laughs> figure this all blonde? out. Peter pounds on the glass trying to warn Liz. All of a sudden the straight so razor Peter, not dead. Once again up about to strike and then the blonde from outside pushes Peter out of the way and shoots Bobby. The wig falls off, confirming what we've already known and figured out, that Bobby is, in fact, Dr. Elliot. Dun! The blonde outside was actually a female officer who had been also tailing Liz. Kind of the most unlikely-looking female officer ever to me, for some reason. She has, like, a very distinct look once we get back to the detective's office. Like, she just does not have the look of a police officer. Well, I mean, I think... That's intentional. They were trying to cast a specific look here. So basically, Liz had two blonde tails. And we're going to circle back to this in a second. Yeah, I was going to say, do you go back? You can tell that one is not the other during that sequence. Well, I don't think I was looking for it, really. We'll come back in a second. So for the time being, Dr. Elliot, not dead. And then there's a scene where it's Marino, Dr. Dr. Levy. So this is like Liz and the blonde police woman are just sitting around. The way afterwards. that Doctor Levy like gives this explanation, it's very reminiscent of like the end of Psycho when the psychiatrist is explaining like what's been going on with yeah. Norman. Yeah, definitely. Doctor Elliot suffered from dissociative personality disorder. De Palma himself saw this as like a Jekyll and Hyde story that there was two different people living in one body and they were at war with each other. And Bobby wanted to be female and was female, and the male side of Dr. Elliot was preventing that from happening, was blocking that they last also step. That make surgery. it like a sexual connection. Like whenever Dr. Elliot would get sexually aroused, that's when like the female side would come out, right? Yeah, to block. Yeah. And that's what led to 
the murder of Kate because she sexually aroused him in that sequence where she offered herself basically to him. And then the same thing was happening again with Liz. Yes. So the arousal was sparking homicidal urges. Okay, so here's the thing. Betty Luce is this other police officer who doesn't actually ever speak, and I think there's a specific reason why. She's played by Susanna Clem, who was like, I don't know, from like Germany or something. Oh, wow. And so they didn't have her speak, probably because she had like a German accent or maybe didn't even know a lot of English. I don't know. Okay. But they, that would have given away the idea that she really wasn't a New York cop. So the idea is that she also was trailing Liz, and so there are certain times where it's trailing supposed to be... Trailing uh, and protecting. Yeah, there were certain times where it was supposed to be her, and then other times where it was supposed to be Bobby. But the actual trick of this movie is the only time that Michael Caine dresses up like a woman is the scene where she gets shot, or he gets shot. That's what I was thinking. It's I never mean, Michael Caine in any of the other scenes, right, yeah, although I, I it didn't looks so. like Michael Caine. It does, but it is a slightly more like feminine look. Yeah, so they needed to find someone who was the right stature and would put on a prosthetic nose with the glasses and then would kind of pass as Michael Caine. Yeah. And so it comes back to almost the same thing with the mirrors and the two and the split screen and everything and it's this doubling idea and it almost turns meta where they want you to kind of understand that it's Michael Caine but it's not quite right and it's I don't know it's weird that right. I mean, and then they use somebody else's voice to do the messages as Bobby that was like a okay. completely other different yeah. person Yeah I and I think it works well I mean sure it does come off as obvious but I do think when I watch it I'm like Okay, yeah, it it looks like this has, like, the body of a man, like, the build of a man, but it doesn't quite look like Michael Caine. Right. It does kind of look like it is a woman. The first couple of times I watched this, I thought it looked like a man in drag, mostly due to the way it's shot, where it seems like yeah. the figure it's is so like big. The shoulders of, like, a linebacker. Yeah, the scene where Bobby is murdering Kate in the elevator... Bobby seems so much bigger. So you think, okay. And plus there's an odd look to the face because True. the actress was wearing the prosthetic nose and everything and the glasses and a wig, even though she herself was blonde. So, I mean, right. it's, it's just very off-putting. Like, you're not sure what you're looking at, which I think is intentional, obviously. I didn't really realize the first time I watched it that once it's revealed oh, that wasn't even Michael Caine, like, earlier dressed up as a woman. Yeah. I definitely didn't even know that until way later. So it's an interesting little twist, because once it is revealed, I do think they make him look close enough to how Bobby looks earlier in the movie where you wouldn't even necessarily suspect it. True. I mean, I think it looks pretty much the same. Okay, yeah, I'm with that. Yeah, I mean, like you're saying, once you study it closely, there's clearly some differences. But on the surface of it, especially the first time you watch it, you see Michael Caine with the wig and everything at the end. And you're like, oh, yeah, that was who that was. Okay, earlier, right. Yes. For sure. And then you're like, oh, wait, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Which is such a weird way to do it. But it ends up working on a couple of different levels. And is it the detective following her in any of the scenes that we see? Or is it always? Yeah. Okay. The chase sequence is her is supposed to be the cop for the first part, and right. then in the subway it's Bobby. Gotcha. Yeah. Because I think Marino even says like, "Oh, how was I to know that there was another blonde following you in the yeah, subway yeah, or right. whatever?" 
And during this final wrap-up conversation, that's where it's finally revealed that he was bluffing about Liz being charged, and this was all like this angle. This brilliant cop said. It seems like he was using her as bait. Oh, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Sexual bait. She's a prostitute. She doesn't count. Well, it's like she was being used (laughs) as bait by him and really Peter, kind of too, a little bit. It seems like. So then, there's a scene of Liz explaining I love to this. Peter. Yeah, they're just like in like this nice restaurant, it seems like. I believe that's in the World Trade Center. Okay, wow. And yeah, there's this woman eavesdropping as Liz is explaining the different surgeries and oh, right. all the I, things that I are going to happen. Part. Yeah, because you know, she's explaining it to Peter like, well, yeah, you know, it's a transsexual. Like, you take women's hormones and you start to grow breasts and you don't get hard. And I was like thinking to myself, Am I pre-op transsexual? <laughs> uh, well, but we are really skating on thin ice with this subject. Oh, please, later. come on! It's just a joke. <laughs> uh, but Peter, um, you know, he's he's a little bit into this conversation. He's just like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Do you want to come over? Exactly right. Yeah, he is definitely. I I definitely feel like in this scene, it seems like he has a crush on her. Yeah, I mean, why else would he be inviting her over? True. I guess his stepdad is now not going to be there for some reason. I don't really know why, but he's not going to be there. Right. So he invites Liz over. The final sequence of the movie is Elliot's escape from the mental institution. He kills a nurse by strangling her, steals the uniform. It's all shot in a very stylized way. It's almost, again, like Silence of the Lambs. It seems like it's taking place in some sort of a building where you wouldn't really be... Like, it's not, like, a real mental institution. It's, it's like, this, I don't know, gothic-looking cathedral, like, uh, observation room or something. I don't know. After the escape from there, in the nurse's uniform, it cuts to the killer's point of view, almost a la Halloween. Like, the opening sequence of Halloween, where Elliot is circling the Miller household where Peter lives, which... Was confusing to me at first because the way that the beginning of the movie feels, you think that Kate and Peter and Kate's husband were living in the city. But yeah, it that's turns what out I they thought. were more living, right. I guess, in a suburb because this is like a house with a yard and everything. Yeah, Peter's busy. Liz is getting into the shower again. Another so these shower two are scene. living together in this sequence. No, this is her. I think supposed to just be staying at the house. Okay. I mean, I don't know. It's, you know, obviously it doesn't turn out to be real, but, right. you know, I think it's just yeah, yeah, an extension of the last time we heard them talking was like she was coming over. And yeah, De Palma sure loves a slow, sensuous shower scene and plenty of breast washing. The breasts always <laughs> breast super washing. clean. Oh, yeah. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of emphasis on right. washing those breasts <laughs> for both shower scenes. Absolutely. Elliot sneaks in, waits while Liz finishes. So much steam once again. The suspense building. Really a slow draining tub, by the way. I mean, she's standing in a lot of water for a shower. Liz sees the shoes and part of the jacket just outside the room. And the implication here is that she knows that this is Elliot. And similarly to the way that she comes into his office that second time in her underwear. And this time she's naked and once again very vulnerable. And then we see... As she gets out of the shower, that the shoes were just a decoy. There's no actual person there. It's just the shoes. And it cuts like this mirror shot, and then her throat is slashed. And you're like, oh shit, she's dead. And then. Yeah, like, that sucks. It cuts to her bolting up in bed, and it was all a dream. Oh, right. Similarly to the way that 
De Palma's version of Carrie and oh, true, yeah, in a dream sequence with somebody bolting up, and that's your movie. <laughs> yeah, starts with a dream, ends with a nightmare. The thing I don't like about the end is it it feels like a little bit of a trope, like the the fake out scare at the end. Well, maybe he's the one that helped make it a trope. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, I do like it overall, but I, you know, I, I don't. Necessarily... I think again, his he was setting up a cool scene. That's true. It's the, one more exciting. The reality part, of yeah. the scene doesn't. I mean, I don't think he really cared. It yeah, could yeah, have right. been real, it's, or a dream, or what. It's just like here's another thing I'm setting up that's cool. It, it, true, because it starts with the killer's point of view, then it the whole decoy thing with the shoes, then we get to use a mirror again to see the razor going across her throat. But it is a super cool movie. There's certainly elements of smut in it. Sure, yeah. A little bit of trash. There's obviously a lot of debate on the nudity and the sex and the violence and the intertwining of the two and what it all means and that fine line of being a commentary for something versus being the thing. <laughs> it's like, well, which well, are you? And that's it's a good question. the space that De Palma has operated a lot and has tended to be most successful. Although, I guess... Financially, Body Double, which is a very similar vibe that was not very successful yeah. compared to this one. I don't think I've seen Body Double. It's cool. But I do. I, I love this movie, and I do love Blowout, so maybe someday we'll do that. Yeah. Hopefully not for a while, since, like I said, it is weird. I mean, Nancy Allen in it, Dennis Franz. I mean, Nancy Allen is playing a prostitute again in that, <laughs> you know? I think, what did that come out? The next year? Was that 81? It seems very close, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that'll do it for One Trashy Summer. I like it. As we said, I think the thesis that we're taking away from this past month is that trashy is just a word in the greatest moments vocabulary. It's not I think so. something that defines it because all of these movies had a certain amount of value and a certain amount of artistic legitimacy that we've uncovered as we've gone through them yeah and i think there's nothing wrong with trash being met with great fanfare really yeah and i think it's a shame that we don't have a modern day equivalent to all these people whether it's De Palma or whether it's the people that were making a lot of those drive-in grindhouse movies or whatever but you know people that were willing to embrace the nudity and violence that we have come to appreciate appreciate yeah and and love and desire from our films (laughs) (laughs) so anyway thanks for listening follow the show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe on apple podcasts and we will see you next time take me now baby here as i am pull me close and try and understand desire is hunger is the fire i breathe Love is a banquet on which we feed
I like that song. I used to like to sit on your face, too. You think that'll happen again? 